in and have nothing to give with, but they want to give their hearts to you and their voices to you and participate in this worship service. Bless us in this hour, for we ask it in Christ's name. For his sake we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I would like to begin this message today by giving you some quotes from some brothers who lived in other days and other times made regarding the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because I'm afraid you've been thinking I'm a little biased toward Baptist. <laughs> uh, just listen to these quotes. Uh, this one comes from John T. Christian, who incidentally is a Baptist. I quote what he says. I have no question in my own mind that there have been a historical succession of Baptists from the days of Christ to the present time. That's in his History of the Baptist, pages 5 and 6. Another quote, George MacDaniel, also a Baptist, writes, Baptists are justly proud of their parentage, the New Testament. They have an ancient and scriptural origin. There is no personality this side of Jesus Christ who is a satisfactory explanation of their origin. Written in the article, The People Called Baptist. Now, hang on a second, will you? Alexander Campbell was a member and started the Church of Christ. One of its main doctrines and tenets is you must be baptized in water to be saved. That man said, Baptists can trace their origin to apostolic times and can produce unequivocal testimony of their existence in every century down to the present time. He said that in his debate with Mr. Walker. John C. Redpath was a Methodist. Mr. Redpath said, I should not readily admit that there was a Baptist church as far back as A.D. 100, though without doubt 
there were Baptists then, as all Christians were then Baptist. <laughs> you find that in the Baptist Church Perpetuity, page number 59. And Dermot, representing the Dutch Reformed Church, the Netherlands Reformed Church, says this, we have now seen that the Baptists who were formerly called Anabaptists and in latter times they were called Mennonites were the original Waldenses who have long in history the honor of that origin. On this account, the Baptists may be considered as the only Christian community which has stood since the days of the apostles and as a Christian society which has preserved pure the doctrines of the gospel through all ages. That's in the Christian history book, page number 95. And let me give you a little short one. This comes from Moshim, if you want to call him Moshim, it's all right with me. A Lutheran theologian made this statement, the first century was a history of the Baptist. Now, shame on you for thinking I was being biased. All right. Now, just forget that. Okay, let's get into the message. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew 26. Speaking this morning on the subject, the Lord's Supper, as it relates to this series on the New Testament church. Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where will you that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful. And began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born then Judas Iscariot was also one of the apostles and he was present at the initiation of the Lord's Supper. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Now we don't have time to run the reference, but you do well to write it down in John thirteen thirty giving an account of this very thing, tells us at that point Judas got up and left. Our Lord did not 
initiate the Lord's Supper until he got rid of an unbelieving hypocrite. And that hypocrite was Judas Iscariot. As soon as Judas left, he proceeded. He used the Passover as a springboard. He used it to introduce the Lord's Supper. So verse 26 says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Do not forget that the apostles were the first members of the church that Jesus Christ built. There was added unto the church first the apostles and then prophets and then evangelists and other people that were blessed with leadership capabilities. Now he says in verse 28, this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I say unto you, I'll not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. It is important for us in our Bible study to remember that water baptism precedes the Lord's Supper. Water baptism precedes the Lord's Supper. The reason I say this is because the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance and you cannot enter church membership apart from faith and following the Lord in believers' baptism. There are only two ordinances in the New Testament church. Some churches have as many as seven ordinances in their makeup. But the New Testament church only has two ordinances and both should be observed and practiced only within the confines of the local New Testament church. Did you hear that? Does it make a difference? I think it should. My wife and I attended a wedding many, many years ago, and I'll not go into detail this. You pick up who it might have been. I don't want you to do that. If I wanted you to do that, I'd just tell you what the name is to begin with. But I won't do that. This girl and this young man, falling madly in love, wanted to be married, and that's good. And they went to a certain church here in the city of Tyler, my wife and I knew the young lady quite well, and we went to observe that particular wedding in that church. As a part of that wedding, the bride and the groom observed the Lord's Supper. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in all of my life. They were out of order. The Lord's Supper is for the New Testament church not for the marriage ceremony. But what I'm saying simply is this, my dear friends, that both of these ordinances should be observed and practiced only within the confines of the local New Testament church. The ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. They're two distinct meals, M-E-A-L-S, mentioned in our scripture reading. 
Number one, the passage that we've just read for your hearing, we are introduced to the Passover meal. That's verses 17 through 25. And as I pointed out in John 17, verse number 30, Judas exits that group right after the Passover meal, and then the Lord institutes his supper, the Lord's Supper, verses 26 through 30. The Passover meal was a Jewish feast. It's also called the Paschal meal. Pascha is a Latin word for the word Passover. The Lord's Supper is a church meal. It is sometimes referred to as the Last Supper. And probably the reason, one of the reasons why it's referred to as the Last Supper, notice verse 29 in our text. I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. For 2,000 years, the Lord Jesus Christ has been in heaven. But one day he's coming again in the clouds of glory and he will drink that with him. We will have that privilege of drinking it with him and eating in his literal presence in his kingdom. The Passover meal was a precursor. It was a forerunner to the Lord's Supper. We might call it the last Passover or the first supper because we didn't have any more Passovers after that, not in the presence of the Lord. Might be called those two things. We'll briefly lay out the Passover meal and then look more closely at the Lord's Supper. It's called sometimes the first supper, the first supper of the Jews. The feast of Passover Look, if you would, in the Old Testament to the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. The 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. The feast of the Passover. This is a Jewish meal now. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It'll be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if a household be too little for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, has to be a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And in the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. They shall take of the blood, strike it on the two side posts, on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, 
but roast it with fire, his head and his legs with the pertinence thereof. What in the world is the pertinence thereof? About the closest thing I could possibly say that would give you a general idea about what I'm speaking is that some people like chitlins. They do. I don't. I don't like chicken entrails. But even the entrails of that roasted lamb was to be eaten, cleaned, and eaten. Well, they were very precise, were they not? Now, there were seven feasts of Israel according to Leviticus chapter 23. And while you're turning over there, please notice in verse 14 of this chapter 12, it describes these feast days as a memorial. This day shall be unto you for a memorial. What's the purpose of a memorial? It's to get us to remember. Sometimes a loved one dies and we call it a memorial service because we want to think about the good times we had with that person while they were still alive. This day shall be unto you for a memorial. I think it is also very significant that in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20, when you find Luke's account of the giving of the Lord's Supper, he said, this do in remembrance of me. That when you meet to observe the Lord's Supper, you think about me. You think about my body. You think about my blood. You think about what I did on the cross to save sinners. It'll be a memorial. Now going back to the statement I made prior to that, that in the book of Leviticus chapter 23, there are seven such feasts that Jews observed and were commanded by Moses to observe. In Leviticus chapter number 23, so that you'll know it, I want to mention them to you. In verse number 5, you have the Passover feast, it's called. He starts off by saying in verse 4, chapter 23 of Leviticus, these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their season. He lists the first one as the Passover. In the 14th day of the first month, at even is the Lord's Passover. But what happened the next day? A second feast started. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the 15th day of the same month is the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In verse number 9, it was called the first fruits, the feast of first fruits, the memorial of first fruits. The Lord said unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, say unto them, When you come into the land which I give unto you, and you shall reap the harvest thereof, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. 
on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And verse 16 gives us the Feast of Pentecost. Even on the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number what? Fifty days. Why fifty days? Because the word Pentecost means fifty. The fiftieth day. You shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. That's the fourth of these memorial feasts. The fifth one is called the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 24, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial, and there's that word again, a memorial of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation, a holy assembly. The sixth one was called the Day of Atonement, verse 27, also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a Day of Atonement, it shall be a holy convocation unto you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The seventh and final one is mentioned in verse 34. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. And usually and many times they called it the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, Booths. They called it the Feast of Booths. They do it in verse 42 and 43, you shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, in tabernacles that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Brother Kozar, what has that got to do with anything? Well, before the Lord's Supper was initiated, this was one of those seven feasts called the Feast of Passover. And the Lord said, go out and make sure that the place is furnished and take care of all the fixings for it. Before I get there, call the feast of Passover. Now the meaning of Passover is verses 11 through 14. It was to commemorate or to memorize the passing over of the death angel with the children of Israel, while at the same time taking the life of the firstborn of every Egyptian family. This is how Pharaoh lost his son. The death of the firstborn was one of the ten plagues that God put on Egypt because Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel go to freedom. The Israelites were instructed to kill a lamb and put the blood of the doorpost, pardon me, put the blood on the doorpost of the houses to prevent death in their families. Now the only reason Israel was spared was due to a substitute lamb that was sacrificed. If the death angel, when he came through, saw blood on the door lintel and on the threshing entrance of the homes, he would not take the death of the firstborn. The blood was a symbol of life. Life. 
Well, what was the menu of the Passover? And the reason is, most likely, some of you, and I'm not guessing, and I'm not presuming, I don't know if you've ever been into Jewish service or not. Quite frankly, I would, I would love to preach in a Jewish service, but I don't think they're going to invite me to come. What was the menu? What did they eat in verses 3 through 8? They ate roasted lamb. Verses 3, 8, and 9. And then they ate with that unleavened bread. Now that's not the donut shop next door, okay? They ate unleavened bread. In verse 8, this unleavened bread was to symbolize purity and sincerity. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, it says this, To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth a whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So it was a symbol of purity, unleavened bread, symbolized sincerity and purity. And in addition to that, they brought in a bowl of bitter herbs. In verse number 8, which spoke of the severity of Egyptian bondage. For these many, many years they were subject to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt being punished by God for being down there to start off with. And everything about it was bitterness. They talked about the work they had to perform and the things that they had to do was bitterness. Every morning they woke up with a bitter taste in their mouth because it was, and those bitter herbs, when they would eat them, it's like they were a memorial don't forget the bitter herbs. Don't forget how awful they taste. And the hard time you had for 200 years in Egyptian bondage. And then they had wine. It is not stated in the initiation of the Lord's Supper. It is the fruit of the vine. That's how you can be scripturally correct. It doesn't say that it was wine the fruit of the vine. They used it to wash it all down. Some hold the fruit of the vine as grape juice. There are some churches even today that when they observe the Lord's Supper, they use wine and not Welch's grape juice. Now we won't go into that this morning. Be glad to talk to you about it anytime you want to, but I won't take the time to go into the pros and cons of which route you go with that. It's the fruit. Anybody say, Brother Koza, what do y'all serve in the cup? What y'all serve? We serve fruit of the vine. Now, they can't fuss with me about that. That's what the scripture said. Fruit of the vine. It's man comes along and says, oh, it got to be John Barley corn, baby. Huh? Now let's look at the Lord's Supper. In that 26th chapter of Matthew, 
beginning with verse 26, and as they were eating, notice they had already observed this memorial called Passover. And they had finished that meal, and Judas got up and left. And when Judas left, they continued eating. Jesus took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Please notice that the menu changed in the giving of the Lord's Supper from the Passover memorial. A good reference, you do it on your own time, it's just Luke's accountability of the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, 19 through 20. They had a single loaf of unleavened bread. In preparing for the initiation of the Lord's Supper, it was not a lot of loaves, but one big loaf, and they all ate of that same one loaf. This represented the body of our Lord Jesus in its purity and in its sinlessness. This body would be nailed to a tree for the sins of God's people. They also had a single cup of wine. And there's a reason why I would use that term wine here. This represents the blood of our Lord, which would be shed for his own to take away their sins. These two ingredients were already on the table in the Passover meal. The unleavened bread was already there, and the drink, juice, or wine, it was already there. So they used that. And all of the disciples ate of one loaf and drank of one cup. Now that's before COVID-19 came along. Somehow or another when COVID-19 came along, somebody got it out. Better not go to church anymore. Because it, it, it's a curse to go to church at COVID-19. Because we've been through that. And a lot of other churches have been through that. There's some churches today that are no longer churches because they had to close the door because COVID-19 shut them down. But notice that the menu changed in the Lord's Supper. The lamb was omitted. They didn't go out and get a lamb and roast it with fire not in the initiation of the Lord's Supper. They did it with the Passover meal, but not with the Lord's Supper. Christ is the fulfillment of this. He is the Lamb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be new as you are unleavened for even Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us, not by the blood of bulls and goats and heifers, but by the blood of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is what the New Testament teaches about 
the Lord's Supper. So the lamb was omitted, and there were no bitter herbs on that table used in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, get this, the Lord's Supper does not show us what we were before being saved. It shows us who we are in Christ. And there's a difference. There's a difference. There are three major views of the Lord's Supper. I'm sure there must be several adjustments here. But basically there are three major views on the Lord's Supper in churches today. Number one is the theory of transubstantiation. That is the one practiced by Roman Catholicism. This makes the supper a sacrament and essential to salvation. Not only have you, you have to be baptized to be saved, but you have to partake of the Lord's Supper to be saved. It proposes, now watch this church, and I'm not, I'm not talking out of school here. We can talk about this after church. It proposes that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ in the hands of the priest. And that the wine becomes the literal blood of Christ. To be saved, a person must literally eat the flesh and literally drink the blood of Jesus Christ as Roman Catholicism. That's what the whole church of Catholicism is built on. There is a second major view on the supper. It's called consubstantiation. Mostly practiced by Lutherans. This makes the supper also a sacrament and makes it necessary to salvation. It proposes that Christ is actually present in the supper. It did not go as far as saying that the bread was actually Christ's flesh and that the wine was actually his blood, but it did propose that Christ was so bodily present in the observance that to receive the observance was to receive Christ. Consubstantiation. And then, of course, the Baptists, they came along and they said, it's a memorial. Remember those seven feasts? They were memorials. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. The bread represents the body of Christ and the wine represents the blood of Christ. It was a memorial of Christ's death on the cross. It is an observance, not a sacrament. It is no more essential to salvation than is baptism. If you go to heaven, if I go to heaven, it won't be because we observe the Lord's Supper or that we were baptized. Now, God's people ought to be baptized and God's people ought to observe the Lord's Supper because they have been saved, but never in order to get saved or to protect or to partake in salvation. <clears throat> Three major views on the observance itself. I don't know how many preachers in Tyler, Texas preaching today on Lord's Supper. I don't think many. Three major views on the observance itself. There is open communion. I'm trying to, to give you some facts here, okay? 
open communion. It is a Christian observance. Those who believe it to be an open celebration or an open remembrance, it's a Christian observance and is open to all who name the name of Christ as Savior. Regardless of their church affiliation, or even if they do not belong to a church, all denominations are welcome to participate. It's open to everybody who comes in. A second approach to it is called close, not closed. (laughs) We'll be there in a minute. Close communion. It is restricted to Baptist only. Other Baptist churches may come in and partake of the supper. Other denominations are excluded. And then there is closed communion. It is a local church ordinance. And it is limited only to those who are members of the church that is serving the supper. Reasons for closed communion. Each church under Christ is absolutely independent. There's not another Baptist church in the world that can tell our church what to do and what not to do. It might well be the last Baptist church of Bidenville. I don't know. Nobody has a right to come in here and tell us what we're going to do. We are an independent group of baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are assembled to carry out the commands of Christ and that's what we intend to do according to the teaching of God's word. Let me give you Mr. Mosheim again. A.D. 100, in that time he says... All the churches in those primitive times were independent bodies. None of them were subject to the jurisdiction of any other. It is clear as noonday that all Christian churches had equal rights and were in all respects on footing of equality. By 200 A.D., during the great part of this century, all of the churches continued to be, as at first, independent of each other, or were connected by no, that's a good word, associations or confederations. Each church was a kind of little independent republic governed by its own laws. Do you believe that? I do. Have no problem with that. That's what the New Testament church is. I was a Southern Baptist for 17 years. Boy, it was glory, hallelujah day when Dan Cozart got out of the convention. I'm here to tell you it was. We won't go into that. Not this morning. Some other time. Members of other churches do not come in to vote on church's business. Have you noticed that? We take care of our own business. Well, why would anybody want to say, let's just open the doors and let all these people out on the streets come in and they can help us with our business. We don't do that. Why do we do it with the Lord's Supper? It is a church thing. Yeah. 
Each local church is committed to the sole administration and guardianship of the ordinance. Mr. Harvey of Hamilton Seminary said this, when a man eats of that one bread and drinks of that one cup, he, in this act, process, professes himself a member of that one body in heart, holy sympathy with its doctrines and life, and freely in fullest subjection himself to its watch, care, and government. Hence, in 1 Corinthians 5.11, the church is forbidden to eat with immoral persons. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? The church is forbidden to eat with immoral persons, thus distinctly making the ordinance a symbol of church fellowship. That's why we could sing at the end of the service this morning. We had it here at 9.30. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. Not with everybody outside the church, but with this church. It's a church thing, folk. If the ordinance of baptism is closed, and it is, should not the Lord's Supper be closed as well? Or should we say we have a baptistry and you can come in and believe anything you want to. We, we'll, be good. We'll, let, we'll, we'll lease it out to you. That's a good Baptist subject, isn't it? <laughs> Leasing out the baptistry. We do not accept other forms of baptism in this church. You say, what about sprinkling? It ain't no baptism. I hate to bother you with it, but it, that, that's not baptism. You can call a, a skunk a polecat if you want to. We're, ta we're talking about the same animal. We have no problem with that. But don't come to me and tell me that it's so sweet. Polecats are just so nice and we need to cooperate. No, you talk cooperation with them. We do not accept other forms of baptism in this church. Neither do we accept as members those baptized in order to be saved. That's a different plan of salvation. Neither do we baptize those who want to be members somewhere else. The same with the Lord's Supper. It belongs within the confines of the local New Testament church with everyone else being restricted. and I'll still get you out before lunch. The last thing is this. Who qualifies to partake of the Lord's Supper in a New Testament church? Number one, the person who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. If he said, well, you don't understand. You see, I, I, I don't believe it just like the folks about Jesus. We, we have our own God. You can get out of here. We're not interested. We're interested in one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second of all, one who has been scripturally baptized. If he was baptized in order to be saved, that's not scriptural baptism. If he was poured, if he was sprinkled upon, not scriptural baptism. Talk to Philip in Acts chapter number 8. 
Number three, one who has been received into the membership of a constituted New Testament church. It is a church function, a church function, not the public school, not the Salvation Army. It's a church conference. It's a church time. It's a church doctrine. One who is in hearty agreement and fellowship with the doctrines of that church. Well, dear friends, if we can't believe, if we can and do not believe what we say we believe, we don't even have a church. And number five, one, two, three, four, five, that's the last one. One who's walking in gospel order. That's who can belong and follow the Lord and participate in not only baptism, but participate in the Lord's Supper. Two questions and I close. Number one, when should we do this observance? When? Some people, some churches have it every Sunday. That's okay. That's their business. It's not our business. When should we have the Lord's Supper? The only scriptural admonition we have is in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, as oft as you eat this bread and as oft as you drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he comes. Lord, do it often. Now, as I said, not only did COVID-19 affect our participation in the Lord's Supper, being sanitary and all that type thing, uh, there were some other ramifications of that as well. Uh, but we want to do what God enables us to do according to the way God says it ought to be done. And the final question is, how should it be served? It should be served, I think, with all practicality. You know, when you view that upper room scene and see what they had and where they met, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't the Shamrock Hilton, okay? It was just the common folks like me and you who'd been saved by the grace of God got together, 12 men. One of them was a thief and a liar. His name was Judas. They got rid of him. But apart from him, all the rest of the others were 11 apostles, and they were the nucleus of this New Testament church. Now, I, I needed to do that. You say, why did you need to do it? Because I'm the pastor of the church. I mean, that's what you people hear. You, you hear it come out of me. Doesn't mean everything I say is always right, but it does mean one thing. It means I'm accountable to God Almighty for what I say and preach and teach in this pulpit. And if we have any preachers present today, sir, you are accountable unto God for what you believe and how you preach and what stand you take for the Word of God. Now can we all kiss and make up? That all right? It's been such a delight to have you here. Let's stand, please, for prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank thee today for the word of